this morning. It's nice to be back from our time away from last Sunday and able to join with you once again in Luke's Gospel, where Pastor Dan, I believe, concluded last time with verses uh, 57 through 62 of chapter 9. And so, as you had read for you, uh, kind of, was um, we're, we're jumping into chapter 10. Chapter 10, moving on. I won't be able to make it all the way to verse 16, so it really didn't, me- it didn't mess up anything that we didn't re- quite get it in 16. Uh, it, I'm not actually making it that far, so it actually really works out well. Um, but it is important um, as we look to the text of chapter 10, just remember what will color each and every passage as we move forward in the gospel is that key contextual factor So that you're now going to start using, in other words, Jesus' resolve to move toward Jerusalem as a reader, as your filter or lens through which you begin reading each and every passage, each and every piece of discord. Uh, discourse. You're, you're reading it in light of the movement of the gospel now of Jesus moving toward Jerusalem. Um, I believe this was presented last week as well, but just as you recall, in chapter 9, if you look back in verse 51, this is really where the gospel begins to make this left turn, and now it's going to color each and every, as I said, piece of discourse. Verse 51 says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, that, that is, the, again, once again, I don't mean to overstate to you what we've been saying for a few weeks, but just by way of remembrance to recall, this is so significant in our reading of each and every piece going forward that he set his face, that, that sense of steel resolve and commitment. This is where it's all leading for him, and this is, as disciples, where it's all leading for you. He is absolutely stone-faced to Jerusalem. That is why he has come. This is where his mission is leading him. Verse 53 reinforces that for you as you look down in the text of chapter 9. But the people did not receive him. We covered that a few weeks ago and all that was taking place. And the cause of that with the Samaritans, the cause for why they don't want to house him is because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And again, then you get into the Samaritan and the Jews uh, debates and so on and so forth of why they didn't want anything to do with helping what was perceived to be a journey toward Jerusalem. For our purposes, what we see from this is that we are about one year out in the gospel, historically speaking, from the death of our Lord and the events that occur just outside of Jerusalem. That is the large contextual piece that we need to have in mind at each and every pass of the gospel. The entire gospel now is moving toward the events of the cross. So in light of this movement of the gospel, how does that affect our reading? Well, much of the discussion now is going to focus upon what it means then to follow him to Jerusalem. So, so, So now you're being drawn in to this great drama, to the movement of Jesus to the cross and the events that are going to take place there for your justification, and then the discourse now that we know he's moving that direction falls to you, reader. Not to sit back and watch him go, but what that means for you to follow him. That's where the weight of it, so, so, so in the one sense, yes, he's the only one who can go to Jerusalem and accomplish what he accomplishes in Jerusalem. And there's a wonderful 
announcement that is made to you based on what he did in Jerusalem, the good news announcement known as the gospel. But it isn't only an announcement that you receive and rest in, it is also an announcement that beckons your life to be laid down and follow. That's where the discourse now shifts. Yes, I'm going to Jerusalem. His face is set towards Jerusalem. And then you notice the very next text that was covered last week. Verse 57. I will follow you wherever you go. Will you? That's the emphasis now in Luke's gospel. That if anyone is going to follow after me, that is... In the short run, historically speaking, to Jerusalem, it's going to be very difficult for you. Likewise, 2,000 years later, the text still stands with its same force. If anyone in here will follow after me, he must deny himself, he must take up his cross. And, and deny himself daily, following after me. So you have that sense where it's very tangible, concrete, and real for those men who were in that company. This is going down within a year's time. Um, and yet, it still abides and remains to each and every one of us. We might not have the exact historical features of the text where this is going to, in a very short run, cost us everything. But because we're removed historically and geographically speaking, it doesn't mean we're removed spiritually and actually where there will still be the cost of discipleship in our lives 2,000 years later. The categories may have shifted in the immediacy of turbulence and physical cost might be a few degrees different and, uh, and, and, and might hurt in a different way. But if it doesn't hurt at all, and there is no cost, then we have to ask if we're following. That's just the reality of the text that is prompting you to ask. I'll go with you wherever you go during the song service. Right, 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 great. And hereafter, when it begins to be less exciting for me, and it's more deeply challenging, and it's more personal for me. By your grace, I will follow after you as you enable. And there can't be a naivety to it that says that there won't be cost because we live in our society with the rule of law. Or where there is cost, we, absor- we, we get around it. There must be to our life in Christ genuine and real cost. It's proof of following. So, uh, again, as we look at the text, look at verse 16 of chapter 10 that we're in. And there's a small picture of this, how this is going to be very real for you uh, in your life as well. And, and again, I don't don't want to say this is how it'll be difficult, and this is how you'll be received, and this is how you'll be um, shunned, and this is the persecution you will experience. Because, again, each one of us have a web of relationships and a sphere of influence and industry that we're in that is particularized to our stewardship. So to to put it into broad categories of this is what's going to happen to you in the world out there when you follow Christ. This is it. This is it. This is it. It, That wouldn't be applicable to each and every one of us. But that doesn't therefore mean it won't cost each of us. 
And that's what he says in verse 16, in a sense, here, again, missionally to the 72. But look at verse 16, in your own sense of following. Verse 16, the one who hears you, hears me. I think that's the answer to the question in verse 1, actually, that he sent them ahead of them two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. If we look at the the geography at all, it would be very challenging for he himself to actually have gone into each and every village, physically been present, and physically spoke at that point in time within the timeline of one year as we head toward Jerusalem. So there's a very real sense of ministers' proclamation in the presence of Christ in that proclamation. And there's a very real sense in sharing the gospel, in preaching, or in evangelism, wherein you, in sincerity, disclose the truth of the gospel. Jesus says, the one who hears you, hears me. That's what it is to be a laborer. And then he moves to, like, if they're hearing me, though, and you're in this relationship, you're in this discussion, you're in this point of evangelism, you're in this relationship that's costing you, He reassures you of your cost. And the one who rejects you is rejecting me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. In other words, the life that Christ is leading in his way to Jerusalem, in the experience of the crowd, in the experience of rejection, is largely going to be the same relationship that you are going to experience as well in your relationships to the crowds or your relationships to others. That there, when, you're, when you're living out the ethics of the gospel, the call of the law in your life to love your neighbor as yourself, and you're doing it in a manner after Christ, speaking forth gospel, those individuals hear you, they are hearing me. And the experience that I then had is in many ways going to be the same that you are going to experience. That's why he says, consider then discipleship to be costly. So he's repeatedly shown the disciples, if we reach back into chapter 9 as well, and we don't have to go there, but you figure what we've been learning in the last couple of months through chapter 8 and chapter 9 and kind of the, the uh, fumbled away exorcism that was a rebuke to them. And then if we look at the discourse a couple of weeks ago of how they were pointing out, don't worry, that guy was doing good, but we told him to stop because he's not with us, so on and so forth. This picture and then the disciples saying, which one of us is the greatest all, we put it all together at this point in the gospel in him speaking of the counting the cost. To each and every one of us, we learn through these texts that following Christ for each and every one of us will require faith. That was the rebuke where they began to act in the exorcism. And then they got caught because they couldn't do it. And it was awkward and embarrassing. And they were being, uh, uh, you know, stripped down by the Sanhedrin or those who were there. And Jesus says, this kind of demon is cast out through faith or through prayer. So we recognize in following him, each and every one of us, it will require faith. And when they said, which one of us is the greatest, he once again makes clear it requires humility. And the contrasting spirit in each and every one of us is to seek power and self-promotion. And this is against discipleship. 
So now we move into the next commissioning here in chapter 10 of the 70 or the 72. You had it read for you already in verse 1 as you see that there are 72 others that he now is bringing together as a band to then send them out two by two. Noteworthy as we get into this section is that each of the synoptics, so that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each one of them cover the first missionary enterprise of chapter 9. That is the commissioning of the 12 and the sending them out, empowering them and enabling them, sending them forward and then receiving them back. Each of the synoptics cover that initial missionary endeavor. However, only Luke records this secondary missionary enterprise, the sending out of the 70 or 72. Only Luke records this. Immediate to each of us, I'm sure, as it was to me, it would be to you, is the question of why. Why would Luke have only noted this, what seems to be very significant movement of the missionary enterprise a year away from going to Jerusalem on our journey toward Jerusalem? Why is the synoptic rector not covering all of this? And the answer is, I have no idea. And I didn't read anyone that felt that they had any idea. So, not sure exactly as to why Luke chose to incorporate this as he tells Theophilus, I want you to be confident of the things that you have been told. And you remember that statement is the thesis for the book of Luke as to why and how he put together his gospel account was to give, oh, Theophilus, I want to give you a solid record of what did occur in the life and events of the Lord Jesus Christ so that when you read it, you're confident uh, that what you've heard through the rumor bill, what you've heard preached in sermons, portions you've had read, I want you to be confident in the things you have learned. And so I'm putting together this orderly record. So there's something tied to purpose with Luke that felt the need to incorporate this where the other synoptic accounts seem not. Now, also significant here as we get into the text is the number 70 or 72. There is a large debate centered around where does the number come from and what does the number stand for. Look at verse 1 again. I'll read it and then we'll just kind of walk through the passage just briefly. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, if you look at the text, if you look closely in your English translation there, you should probably see a footnote, I would guess. In most English translations, there's a footnote by the number 72. So you have 72 in the body of the text, and then you should probably have a small little footnote there. And the reason is because there are some manuscripts that read 70, and there are others that read 72. So then that's where the work of textual criticism comes in, right? So we're looking at extant manuscripts, bodies of texts that are left, that are generationally removed from the original manuscript, and they're transcribed. And then textual criticism simply gathers them from region and place, locale, and so on and so forth, and then they begin to do the work of textual science to be able to see what is the credibility of which body of manuscripts out of all the manuscripts we have in order to see priority rise. Like this body, this text, manuscript family is most likely the best manuscript family we have. Some others have small little different spellings. Some words are kind of maybe someone fell asleep and you know made a little squiggly line on them or then others they seem to be too many of them so on and so forth. 
And textual criticism then begins to place together our best shot at the readings of the texts. So in the evidence of textual criticism, the number tends to rise at most probability to be the number 72. So you should probably have in your English text the number 72 with the footnote letting you know. However, there is a decent probability that the number could be 70. It's 72 or 70 just to let you know. The best evidence seems to be 72. But the bigger question, I'm sure, you didn't come for a lecture or thought on textual criticism, and I'm not able to actually provide that. So it works out for both of us. The bigger question, really, that each of us question is perhaps, and this is where commentaries, theologians, and so on go, is really where, though, did the number come from? Whether it's 70 or 72, what's the significance of the number? Why not 68? Why not 110? How random, or is it random, that he picked 70 or maybe 72? So the question is, is the number symbolic? As we have already encountered in the book of Luke, our Lord's work in calling forth the 12 apostles. If you remember, you were able to be with us. You already have that all locked down in your memory. I know I don't need to retrace those steps for you because you memorize the sermons weekly. But for my own sake, let me just pause to recall for myself. The number 12, as we had worked on it, from the gathering and the calling of the apostles is parallel to the 12 tribes of Israel. So as a New Testament reader, when we sit down and we begin to read that our Lord calls 12 apostles, no one is actually really caught off guard or shocked by the fact that as he puts together a missionary band of men that will begin the laying the foundation of the New Testament church, that he picked the number 12. It doesn't shock anybody who spent time reading the text of Scripture from an Old Testament perspective. There are 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 apostles. As our Lord engages in ministry to, again, gather a new Israel. It's not surprising that he picked 12 apostles. However, the number 72 is not so obvious. There are a couple of options that I'll put for you before we just move on from this question of the number. There are a couple of options, perhaps, that help us with the number 70 or 72, which, interestingly enough, call into question our textual criticism, perhaps. The number 70 seems like we could find an easier parallel for. There are, if we considered, where did the number 70 or 72 come from? There are, if we recall, 70 elders of Israel that were given the Spirit in order to help Moses lead Israel in the wilderness. That's Numbers chapter 11. How many elders? 70. How many nations did the Jews consider to be in the world? Well, if we go back to Genesis 10, they thought there were, by genealogy in Genesis 10, 70. And then how many, were, how many Jews were in the ruling body at the time that would have kind of overseen the governance of the place? There were how many members? 70. So, where the number comes from, I'm not exactly sure. And does it parallel exactly with 70 elders of Israel? There's 70 here that he's sending out on commission. There's 70 nations they believed, and therefore the gospel is going to the nations. And this is kind of showing that in symbolic form, that there's 70 now that are going out, or 72, or there's 70 members of Sanhedrin. In any case, where the number comes from really doesn't matter. So I've wasted your time talking about it for too long, when in the end, I don't know where it comes from, and it really doesn't matter. Because 
what we do see from the number or from the passage in total is it's very similar to the calling of the twelve. What matters, or where Luke puts the emphasis of the discussion, is upon the instructions that Jesus provides. More than on a rabbit trail of studying symbolic figures and wondering how this mirrors that, or where we could come up with a neat numerological theology in order to say 70 stands for the new world order or something crazy. Rather, the emphasis falls upon the instructions given by Jesus, and we actually go on to hear almost nothing about what transpired across the course of that campaign. Now, in verse 17, we have a small little comment, and this is really the only comment that we know about the course of the campaign. So again, this, to my point, the weight of the text is upon Jesus' instructions that we'll consider next. Because for all the number talk and all the consideration of what they actually do, we really don't know anything about it. We have this one statement in 17, as you see there. The 72 returned with joy, and we'll look at that in a week or so, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So that is it. That's all we know, is that they seem to come back with joy and there was some measure of success. Interestingly there, I think that the subjection of demons, since it's not told us anywhere in the text that they are going to actually do exorcisms, now it was explicitly stated in the sending out of the twelve, here it isn't. So in chapter 10, when we look at the instructions in just a moment, you won't see anywhere in there where they were told to cast out demons. Nonetheless, that's the only report we have in verse 17 of their success. They were able to perform exorcisms. Praise the Lord, they say. I think that that is a picture of verse 9, the first comment of their commission in verse 9. Heal the sick. I think that gives us a picture, once again, that we have consistently seen in Luke's gospel, that the gospel announcement or the comment of the kingdom is about human flourishing. And that there is relief that comes in the name of Christ to human harm, to human injury, to human brokenness in very real and and concrete, tangible ways. That there is, in human sickness and injury and harm, there is a demonic presence. That there is an unseen conflict. And I'm tying that as with other places in Luke's gospel, that their report of rejoicing was they healed many by casting demons out that were destroying many. And there is a concern for the health and physical well-being of fellow human beings that is tied to a spiritual battle. But I move forward with the thought of the instructions of our Lord in this passage for just the next couple of moments here. Let us move forward in the text with the emphasis upon the emphasis in the text, the instructions of our Lord. So look at verses 2 through 4 just for a few moments. And he said to them, so now we've covered the 72 and they are about to go out in halves. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Perhaps this helps shed some light on our Lord's call here of instruction to go out into the harvest with the number 72. 
Why does he begin to speak about there are so few laborers when perhaps the thought was in the mind of the 72, well, there's not that many villages. It's not that great of a landscape. There's 72 of us. We're about to accomplish the entire harvest. So lest the 72 think they have it totally under wraps, Jesus corrects this impression immediately. Lest they think, hey, you know, we've got this whole redemptive scheme under control. We'll take care of what needs taking care of. Jesus corrects the impression by saying, actually, though you might be 72 and the villages are not innumerable, the scope of the gospel and the harvest of God is immense. It is well beyond. This gives us a small picture of the gospel going well beyond the borders of Jerusalem alone. Again, the 72 might think, we're here, this is the land, we've got it. And he's saying, no, the harvest is plentiful. Its bounds overflow. It is gathering a people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. We see here just a small picture of the great commission that comes at the end of the gospel. That great comment to make disciples from every single nation. In the expanse of the gospel that begins in the book of Acts, where we see from Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. This is how plentiful the harvest really is. It's important also to note the means by which the harvest is accomplished. Notice the text very carefully. How will he accomplish this harvest? Verse 2, he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, period. That's the truth of the matter. The scope is immense. And the comment of its plenty is there are laborers simply that are too few. Well, then how will you accomplish this plentiful harvest? How will it be done? What should we do? Should we go further? How should we work? What's the strategy? Pray. That's the response to the overwhelming feeling of the harvest. If it truly is so immense. And it involves every people, tribe, language, tongue. How can just a few of us do it? You cannot. What should we do? Pray. So strategy for accomplishing the harvest of God is to pray, number one. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. He who owns the harvest. It's his harvest. He's the reaper. It's him. It's he who owns the harvest. It's his plentiful work. And it will be plentiful. Pray to him. In order that, and this is the second piece, how is the harvest accomplished? Number one, pray. And number two, that he will send out laborers into the harvest. This is the second piece of how God accomplishes the harvest through prayer and through men and women bearing witness to his gospel. This is how the harvest is reaped, through prayer and evangelism. Let me ask you for two points of application just briefly here on this point. It struck me as I was studying this text. As parents, let me address parents first, thinking of each of us in this boat as a parent myself. 
If we read this text and that the harvest is plentiful and we are to be those believers, believing parents who pray that the Lord sends forth more laborers into the harvest, let me ask you, is your strategy already to raise your children to be laborers in the harvest? As a believing parent, is this what you want first and foremost for your children? Is that they be laborers in the harvest? It has to be a defined strategy of how you're raising them with this goal in mind. I have told my sons, similar, that the goal for me with them as their father is that indeed whatever industry God would call them into, praise the Lord but that they would be in a position that they could have worked, learned, studied, and been prayerfully considered that the Lord would enable them to serve the church in any capacity. That as they join a community, wherever they live, whatever industry they're in, that they would be found faithful in that community and be seen by others in the church as those who could lead the church, aid the elders, be an elder themselves. Is this something we as parents are strategizing for to accomplish with our children? Do you raise them with the thought, I want these boys of mine to be able, if called, to be equipped to serve the church, whether it's ruling elders or paid staff elders? Are we raising our children to be laborers or do we want someone else's kids to be the laborers? On a second note, beyond parents, Consider the scope of the harvest. There is on the other side a concern at some times that we as Christians can have at the immensity of God's work. Sometimes we can begin to think that being a laborer, if we are to be laborers or we are to be used in God's harvest, it will require of us that we, number one, be everywhere all at once. That we run around, largely our lives are hectic and chaotic because we're trying to be faithful laborers. And in order to be engaged in evangelism and meaningful relationships and seeing the Lord use us in ministry, we must be everywhere all at once. Do everything that needs to be done. And finally, and perhaps this is most in the pastoral ministry, know everything there is to be known. This sense of ministry and being a laborer can be so overwhelming that then we simply disengage from being in active ministry. Well, I can't make it to this. I can't make it to that. I don't really know this. I don't really know all that. And the threshold is set so high, the bar is so high, I can't be everywhere all at once. Disengagement, an excuse. Because we feel the weight of the immensity of the harvest, of being used at all. But if we look carefully at this text, this is not how our Lord explains ministry at all. Rather, if we were to track Luke's gospel from the very beginning all the way to now, from the birth announcement with Elizabeth and Mary all the way to this present text with the 72, rather we find again and again that all we need to be in order to be used of the Lord in ministry is prayerful, present and willing to be used. Think about that just one more moment. Is it really incredibly that debilitating that I create distraction in my life so that I can disengage 
Or can each of us, by grace, through faith, be prayerful, present, and willing to be used? Notice how the instructions continue beyond the sense of the immensity of the call, because it is indeed a hard work. And notice how he describes it so very difficult. Verse 3, he warns us. I've got a highlighter here. I can't find my number three. There it is. It says, go your way. So he's sending out the 72. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So again, here it is plain for each of us to see. It couldn't be in clearer terms that following Christ and bearing witness to his gospel, as we saw at the very beginning of the text, will, not may or might, but will expose one to difficulty, danger, and perhaps, I know this is the hardest one for us here in the room to wrap our mind around again and again, but not so for the global church. It will expose one to perhaps even death. Again, he couldn't be clearer that you are going to be the most vulnerable people in the room. Now again, the cost might be different. You might not be asked to lay your life down physically. But if they're hearing him in you, you can expect a similar response to what they gave him. Sheep, as we have mentioned before, cannot provide for themselves They cannot guide themselves, and they cannot defend themselves. So if he says to us, go ahead and walk out the front door, I'm sending you out, and how can I explain what your life will be like to you? Yeah, something very particularly comes to mind. You're going to be sent out, and I'm doing this to you. I'm sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Right? And then that's very sobering. Um, why? Maybe I could be, you know, maybe not the top predator, but a fellow predator. It's something that has some claws, something with some strong teeth, good bite force, something, right? That, why, why do I have to fall to it? Absolutely, if I dropped a lamb off in the middle of any forest, perhaps even with just aggressive birds, that thing would die, Right? <laughs> I mean, it, it just it is the, the, the bottom line. He, can, he is a meal. That's it. No defense mechanisms. And this is how I'm sending you out. And by the way, the work is immense. It's way more than you'll ever be able to wrap your mind around and just go ahead and take off. Well, the question then of the lamb has to be, how will I survive in such an environment? How will we, you and I, each and every day of our pilgrim's journey until the Lord's return, how will we repeatedly need to cope with this pilgrim's journey? How will we survive? And the answer is through an earnest faith. The lamb in the woods has to look away from himself and unto something else, something outside of him, something extra to provide for him, to deliver him, to guide him, to nourish him. It can't come from resources from within. That's why I'm making you like this, so that you will look extra. You will look outside of yourself in order to have your needs met. And not just big ones, but even basic ones. 
And that's the instruction at the end of the text. Look at verses 4 through 8. Carry no money bag. So you're the lamb going out in the midst of wolves with zero defense mechanisms, zero ability to care for yourself. And in fact, whatever you could have taken, just go ahead and offload right here in the line. Take off your carry bag. No knapsack, no sandals. And by the way, this is an urgent mission. Don't spend your time chit-chatting or dilly-dallying. Greet nobody on the road. Just keep moving. You are on an urgent mission to teach the kingdom. By the way, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will return and will rest upon him. Like, you'll be well received if he's receiving of you, and together you'll be in harmony. But if not, uh, it will return to you. You just leave. And uh, verse 7, and remain in the same house, by the way, also, eating and drinking what they provide. Well, how, why will they provide? Well, because the laborer deserves his wages. You're performing a service, and they're going to render aid. Don't, by the way, go from house to house. In other words, don't try to accumulate wealth. Don't get greedy. Wherever you find yourself, be content. The 72 evangelists were sent out by God to trust God for all their needs. And as Jesus explains, they were to be grateful for whatever God provided. Even, now you notice the text where it says, um, uh, verse 8, Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, by the way, eat what is set before you. Be content with what is provided, even if that includes non-kosher food items. Without dispute, eat what is provided. God is caring for you. Be grateful. This is something that I think we need to call to mind again and again as believers. Is a sense of godly contentment. Our focus tends to be maybe not going house to house and living off each other, but moving about kind of on a way that is on a good trajectory upward for us. And he's saying, focus your energies on the harvest. And as a disciple that's costing you, it's going to continue to cost. Don't so focus on going house to house, but as what God does deliver upon you in a kind providence, be content, be thankful, show gratitude. We must call this to mind regularly. We never get past it. It's not like humility and gratitude are always marked off. You know, back in 1996, I passed the gratitude test. We say the same to our kids. One of our daughter's favorite sayings is the youngest one, bringing up very loud and clear that she's around. We teach her the same thing that she likes to preach to each and every one of us, and that is, you get what you get, and you don't throw a fit. Right? That's standard Thomas behavior at the dinner table. And it's good for me to remember a three-year-old when I have thrown a fit. And here, you get what you get. Believe it or not, I've been preached to before in my own house. You get what you get. 
and you don't throw a fit. And this is our Lord speaking to 72 men who are going out to preach the kingdom. Leave all your stuff, depend on God, because you are going to be devoured. Save for his presence goes with you. So the final summary of the text, most broadly speaking to each and every one of us, I want us to consider just these three final thoughts. Number one, that as we look upon the 72 and our cost of discipleship and the call in life of mission, it requires, number one, prayerfulness. A dependency upon God that he will enable, that he will raise up fellow laborers, and that we as parents will look at our children and think, well, we can have a part to play in that as we parent. They would love Christ and love his church. And number two, faithfulness. The text that speaks of being faithful to our Lord in the calling to be witnesses of his gospel truth. And thirdly, to be grateful. A people cared for, a people provided for, a people whose faith is nourished each and every Lord's day. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your gifts of kindness to us. We thank you for this text. Pray that you would continue to work it deep within our heart, that it would overcome our psychology, that faith would overcome our constitutions, and we would rest once again in Christ our Lord, and we would rise up being grateful for what you have blessed us so richly with, whether the provision seems abounding or it seems to be thin. We see from this text, it is planned upon our dial by a God who upholds and governs all of his creatures and all of their actions. So Lord, let a grateful people arise. In Christ's name I pray, amen.